found myself doing is uh, just kind of becoming indifferent to people and, uh, and becoming frustrated with people's uh, st stupidity, if you want to put it that way. Um, and then, you know, he's, he's come to this lesson of Jesus on the cross where he's, um, where he's being crucified and yet, he's, yet he has a concern for those around him. And he says, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. And then uh, last week, Chris covered the second saying of Christ from the cross, which said, Verily I say unto thee, Today thou shalt be with me in paradise. Again, we see Christ's concern for a lost soul, and also we get the truth from the Word of God confirmed in that passage that um, to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. And then today we come to the third saying, and you'll find that over in the book of John, John chapter 19. And uh, we're going to start reading in verse 25. John chapter 19 and verse 25. And it says, now there stood by the cross of Jesus, his mother, and his mother's sister, Mary, the wife of Cleophas, and Mary Magdalene. When Jesus therefore saw his mother and the disciples standing by whom he loved, he said unto his mother, Woman, behold thy son. Then said he to the disciple, Behold thy mother. And from that hour that disciple took her unto his own home. You know, uh, Christ is here hanging on the cross, and in this scripture um, we have a very heart-touching scene. Jesus, the son of Mary, the one who um, John in chapter 1 said, he came unto his own and his own received him not, is now hanging between two thieves suffering perhaps the worst possible death of crucifixion. And surely, as we, in our minds, I would, were to look upon that, it's a heart-rendering time for this man's mother. Um, but let's not get too involved in the emotions of the scene um, this morning uh, unless we've lose sight of some of the lessons out of this scripture. And there's um, a lot that can be learned here. And so this morning we're going to look at really th the three individuals in this uh, scripture. We're going to look at Jesus, then we're going to look at Mary, and then we're going to look at the person of John. Here, um, here looking first at the man on the center of the cross, which is very fitting that he was the center figure, we're going to see that Jesus honored his parents. Now, um, all of us will be familiar with these passages, but if you quickly flip back over to Exodus chapter 20, we see here that even while suffering crucifixion, 
the one who was in the beginning with God, God himself, is found honoring his parents. And we are very familiar with this, but in Exodus 20 and verse 12, the scripture tells us, Honor thy father and thy mother, that thy days may be long upon the land which the Lord thy God giveth thee. So we see here this principle of honoring our parents is uh, an Old Testament principle. We also see this reference in the New Testament over in Ephesians chapter 6. Another passage that you'll be familiar with. Ephesians chapter 6 and verse 1 and 2, it says, Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Honor thy father and mother, which is the first commandment with promise. Um, and so we see this principle of honoring your parents, both being an Old Testament and New Testament command. We see um, here in Ephesus, them, the writer mentioning that it's a, a command with promise, and that promise is that thy days shall be long upon the land which the Lord thy God giveth thee. Um, and so from this we get the principle of, of children honoring their parents. Um, but not only does this apply to uh, young children, this also is a principle that um, uh, expands into adulthood. Christ here, hanging on the cross, was 33 years old. Yet he was still looking to the affairs of his mother. Um, and it doesn't matter your age, if your parents are still alive, if they're still around, then this principle still applies that they are due your honor. Um, honor is much more than just obedience. Um, you know, there's multiple principles in Scripture where the, the um, obedience that you are to have as a child, how that wanes when you become an adult. And certainly God didn't design parents to be um, in the everyday affairs and business of their grown children. Um, and we see there's multiple principles in the Bible about that. Therefore shall man leave his father and mother and cleave unto his wife and, and the principles of being a separate home. But uh, when we think about this word honor, it carries the or includes the attribute of loving, of, of having gratitude. And if you uh, pause and think about the impact that your parents had on you, um, and even if you are not in perfect agreement with all of their views or whatever, just the fact that they brought you into this world, that they clothed you, that they nourished you, that they gave up some financial uh, gain to raise you, and to think about even the sleepless, sleepless nights that there's some gratitude that ought to go into that. And then there ought to be a certain level of respect. That word honor means abounding. And so your, um, your appreciation for your parents ought to abound. It means to boast. It means 
to be chargeable to. And I think uh, regardless of how involved your parents were in your life, that there is a certain amount of being chargeable to them bringing you into this world. It means to make glorious, to promote. And so we see here Jesus even hanging on the cross, having a concern for his mother. Um, and this is, uh, this is a sacred duty not to be overlooked even for the work of the Lord. You know, we, um, we know that Christ fulfilled the whole law. And so even in honoring his mother here on the cross, he was keeping with Exodus, the commandment there in Exodus 20 and verse 12. Though in the midst of great suffering and the greatest, really the greatest work of all time being done here on the cross, Christ found time to honor his living parents. Um, and if the God-man himself is setting the example then of honoring his mother, then we too should honor our parents. Um, now let's shift over here to the person of Mary. Um, here under Mary, one, we see the fulfillment of prophecy. If you turn back to Luke chapter 2, Here in Luke chapter 2, let me get over there. Luke chapter 2, and we're going to look in verse 25. Um, this is when Joseph and Mary are bringing Jesus to the temple. And surely this was another one of those emotional days as a parent. Um, and picking up in verse 25, it says, And behold, there was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon. The same man was just and devout, waiting for the consolation of Israel, and the Holy Ghost was upon him. And it was revealed unto him by the Holy Ghost that he should not see death before he had seen the, Lord, the Lord's Christ. And he came by the Spirit into the temple, and when the parents brought in the child Jesus to do for him after the custom of the law, then took he him up in his arms and blessed God and said, Lord, now let us thy servant depart in peace according to thy word. For mine eyes have seen thy salvation, which thou hast prepared before the face of all people, a light to lighten the Gentiles and the glory of thy people Israel. And Joseph and his mother marveled at those things which were spoken of him. And Simeon blessed them and said unto Mary, so we see him addressing Mary here, his mother, Behold, this child is set for the fall and rising again of many in Israel, and for a sign which shall be spoken against. Yea, a sword shall pierce through his own soul also, that the thoughts of many hearts may be revealed. Um, it's doubtful that Mary fully 
understood in this moment with this young child what all was wrapped up in this prophecy that Simeon prophesied. But here, standing at the cross, looking up at her son, nailed to the cross, um, surely her heart was broken. Um, you know, the love, if you think about the love that a mother has for her children, um, and the more, the older I get, the more I realize that that love doesn't necessarily go away as your child turns into adulthood. Um, you know, I still go out on adventures or go out and experience different things. And sometimes I'll come home and, and my mom will say, you know, your dad was worrying about you while you were out there. Or, you know, my mom comes and from time to time and says, uh, you know, you don't look very good today or, or whatever. And you realize that the care that a mother has for her children doesn't just dissipate when they become adults. And so here this mother, even though her son is 33 years old on the cross, no doubt is very heartbroken over the scene that's before her. Um, the thing to remember here is that, um, is that Sunday is coming. And even though this mother is brokenhearted now, that um, we'll get into this as we go, that this very act is going to be the act that saves her own soul. So we see here that uh, it's a fulfillment of prophecy. We also note here how Jesus um, addresses his mother. Very interesting. He calls her a woman. If you look back there in Luke um, 19 again, you'll see that. I mean, John, sorry. Not Luke, John 19. When Jesus, therefore, in verse 26, when Jesus, therefore, saw his mother and the disciples standing by whom he loved, he said unto his mother, Woman, behold thy son. Why, why did Christ address her as woman? Um, and why not address her as, as his mother? Well, there may be multiple reasons for this. Um, was it because he didn't want to wound her deeper by calling her mother? Uh, like, likely, probably not. Was it to protect her from the mocking crowd that stood around there on the cross so that she did not receive their, their words and their attention? Uh, maybe. Maybe that was part of it. Um, but, but likely not the only reason. Likely this, this reason for which Christ calls her woman um, goes much deeper because he wanted you and he wanted I and the world to know that spiritual relation to Christ 
is more important than any physical blood relationship. Um, we, if we think of false doctrine in this world, we, th- we can think of how the Roman Catholics view Mary. And um, w- when it comes to this concept of immaculate conception, and really what that concept is, is that um, Mary has sinless perfection. Pope Paul VII said, the person who encounters Mary cannot help but encounter Christ likewise. And so there's, there's two parts in this false doctrine of immaculate conception. There's the part where they believe that Mary had sinless perfection. And then there's the part that in that, that she had her perpetual virginity through her lifetime due to some vow that she took. And we just want to take a minute to look at the falseness of both of those. Um, from some Catholic writings, it's, there's one quote here that says, one Roman Catholic saint claimed that at the command of Mary, all obey, even God. She is omnipotent, for the queen, according to all laws, enjoys the same privileges as the king. And since the son's power also belongs to the mother, this mother is made omnipotent to any, to, by any omnipotent, by an, on, by an omnipotent son. Yeah. And then, in speaking of her, and then they, um, they hold, and we're going we're gonna to dig into that a little bit as we go on here. The other point that they hold is that Mary had her perpetual virginity. Um, that one is uh, pretty clear in Scripture, although it's interesting to learn how they twist Scripture. If you go over to Matthew chapter 13, Matthew chapter 13 helps in addressing this false doctrine of perpetual virginity. Matthew 13 and verse 55. Um, Yes. This is when Jesus was back in Nazareth. And and in verse 55 it says, Matthew 13, 55, it says, Is not this the carpenter's son? Is not this his mother called Mary? And his brethren James and Joseph and Simeon and Judas and his sisters? Are they not all with us? Whence then hath this man all these things? And they were offended in him. Now, um, those that hold to this perpetual virginity take verses like this and say that um, this term brethren and this term sisters is used in context of extended family, in context of of cousins. Um, You know, the context, just the context itself doesn't lend itself to that, Um, although that word can be used in that sense, but it's a far stretch. One commentary says, why should the children of another family be brought in here to share a reproach, which it is evident was designed for Joseph the carpenter, Mary his wife, Jesus their son, and their other children. Prejudice apart, 
would not any person of plain common sense suppose from this account that these were the children of Joseph and Mary and the brothers and sisters of our Lord according to the flesh. It seems rather obvious that these gospel accounts refer to Joseph and Mary's children. Why should these people criticize Jesus by mentioning his father, as they presumed, and mother, and then seemingly switch to distant relatives? And so it's clear that Jesus had siblings. The other thing of interest is how they overlook or try to undermine Matthew chapter 1 in this concept of perpetual virginity. Matthew chapter 1 and verse 24 and 25. It says, Then Joseph, being raised from sleep, did as the angel of the Lord had bidden him, and took unto him his wife, and knew her not till she had brought forth her firstborn son, and called his name Jesus. And so the context here would indicate that Joseph knew her not till after Jesus' birth. They would argue that the word till there doesn't mean it happened afterwards. It just, well, they would argue that just because it didn't happen before doesn't mean it happened after. But the context of the verse wouldn't need the word till in there in that in that theory. And so just know that um, this concept of immaculate conception, which undermines really the person of Jesus and tries to deify Mary, um, is a false doctrine. What's, what's surprising, and even as I study this out, is that it's just not Roman Catholics that believe this. Um, there is a big portion of Protestants and there's a reason why Baptists aren't Protestant. Um, that believe and question uh, the person of who Mary is. And so Jesus addresses her as woman here. Um, undermining some of the portents that false religion would put on Mary. Um, in fact, what's interesting here is you go over to Luke chapter 1. This really kind of settles the whole issue of the matter. When it comes to this view that she is equal with God or has some type of in with God. Luke chapter 1 and verse 46 says, And Mary said, My soul doth magnify the Lord, and my spirit hath rejoiced in God my Savior. And Mary herself said that she needed a Savior. Because of Mary being his mother and being very close to Christ physically and emotionally, Roman Catholics and some Protestant have exalted her to the being the position of mediator between man and Jesus. And that's where Pope Paul said, the person who encounters Mary cannot help 
but encounter Christ likewise. But when we look at Scripture and as we think about who it is that we pray to, we do not pray to the mother of God, but instead Jesus said, after this manner pray ye, our Father, which art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. As if the mother of Jesus has some in or some favor that we can obtain through her. Uh, Timothy, 1 Timothy chapter 2 makes this very evident also. <clears throat> First Timothy chapter 2 and verse 5. For there is one God and one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus. Through the work that Jesus was doing and did on the cross, we have a mediator through him. And so, they call, some call her the mother of God, the queen of heavens. But here, in his dying moment, Jesus calls her woman. And what's interesting, if you look over in Mark 2, Mark chapter 3, making a turn to a lot of scriptures this morning. What's interesting is that in man's economy, family and family name might mean some connection, might mean some in. You are the son of so-and-so. But we see here how God views this in his economy. In Mark chapter 3 and verse 31, it says, There came then his brethren and his mother, and standing without sent unto him, calling him. And the multitude set about him, and they said unto him, Behold, thy mother and thy brethren without seek for thee. And he answered them, saying, Who is my mother or my brethren? And he looked around about on them which sat about him and said, Behold, my mother and my brethren. For whosoever shall do the will of God, the same is my brother and my sister and my mother. And so we see in God's economy that family that uh, earthly family name doesn't carry a lot of weight with him as much as those who associate with him and do the will of God. That is who God considers family. So we see here that Mary here fulfills prophecy, is a fulfillment of prophecy. We see how Christ addressed her as a woman, undermining the false doctrine and the false premise that Roman Catholics and others would put on the person of Mary. We also see here in Mary the absolute need of every man, woman, boy and girl to have a Savior. Because if there was anybody that wouldn't need one, it would be Mary. And yet she said, my soul doth magnify the Lord, and my spirit hath rejoiced in God my Savior. How much better than Mary could you and me be 
and yet she needed a savior. This is the woman that said that, and who, who found favor in God's eyes to bring Christ into the world. How much better than Mary could you and I be, and yet she needed a savior? How much more could you do for Jesus than what his mother did? And yet she needed a savior, and we're reminded that all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. And we're reminded that except ye repent, ye shall all likewise perish. And now finally, let's consider this last person, the person John. If you go back there to chapter 19, or actually you may be there, we see here that John was referred to as the one whom Verse 26, well, actually, verse, um, no, verse 26. When Jesus therefore saw his mother and the disciples standing by whom he loved, he said unto his mother, Woman, behold thy son. You know, when we think about the person of John, John was a disciple, well known in the Bible, um, very influential, close to Jesus. Uh, the Bible seems to indicate a man that was close, closer to Jesus than some of the other disciples. We can find examples of John in the Bible where he healed people. Um, and an influential leader there in the first church. And there's many ways John could have described himself. And there's a lot much that John could have said of himself. But John's greatest boast, his greatest joy, the banner that John flew was that he was the disciple that Jesus loved. That's what John was proud of. John, John um, identifies himself multiple times in the book of John. If you go to chapter 13 and verse 23, This is the last, the, example, the last Passover. And John, writing the book of John here in chapter 13 and verse 23 says, And now there was leaning on Jesus' bosom one of his disciples whom Jesus loved. We saw the, at the scene at the cross him saying, The disciple whom he loved. If you go over to chapter 20, John refers to himself the same way here. Chapter 20 and verse 2. Then she running cometh to Simon Peter and to the other disciple whom Jesus loved and said unto them, They have taken away the Lord out of the sepulcher. And then finally in chapter 21 and verse 7. As they're out fishing, he's out with Peter in 21 and verse 7. Therefore that disciple whom Jesus loved said unto Peter, It is the Lord. And so we see here John over and over referring to himself as the disciple whom Jesus loved. The greatest joy and boast of the world 
would be for us to be able to say, Jesus loves me. It's fairly simple, and we sometimes lose sight of the simplicity of little courses that we grow up knowing or learning. And we all are familiar with the song that says, I am so glad that our Father in heaven tells of his love in the book he has given. Wonderful things in the Bible I see. This is the dearest that Jesus loves me. I am so glad that Jesus loves me. Jesus loves me. Jesus loves me. I am so glad that Jesus loves me. Jesus loves even me. And so think there in your own life about what your greatest joy is or how you want to be known. And do we revel in the fact that Jesus loves me? John found it an honor to describe himself as the disciple whom Jesus loved. The other thing we see about John here is that he needed, that he, that, that he was used as a representative. Christ, hanging there on the cross, having a need for his mother, needed someone to sub in in an area where there was a need. Jesus, God in the flesh, needed someone to step in and help care for his mother. And what we're reminded here in this is that God's work must be done by man. That God's work goes on through his servants, through those that do his will. Annie Flint expressed it this way and said, Christ has no hands but our hands to do his work today. He has no feet but our feet to lead them in his way. He has no tongues but our tongues to tell men how he died. He has no help but our help to bring them to his side. So Christ needed a representative to step, to step in and help with this need. The other thing to think about here is the honor that was bestowed upon John to be able to care for Christ's mother. Jesus, the creator of the world, looks down from the cross and says, Woman, behold thy son. And then he said to the disciple, Behold thy mother. An honor to be asked to be singled out by Christ for need. And no doubt, as John took Mary back home, that he got to experience some of the stories of Jesus' early days, some of the untold stories that aren't found in Scripture of his childhood. And um, 
and no doubt he got to experience some of the honor of caring for the mother of the Lord. And we note here, we note John's response in verse 27 there of John 19. When Christ looks at him and he said to the disciple, Behold thy mother, and from that hour that disciple took her unto his own home. Note here John's immediate, immediate obedience. He readily accepted and went to do the task. And I'm just reminded, um, do we consider it an honor when Christ comes and tugs at our heartstrings and says, hey, I need you to do this. Hey, I want you to go talk to that person. What is our, what is our outlook? What's our perspective um, of what's well, my duty to go do this? Or am I honored that the Savior of the world wants to, wants to use me in his need? And we note here that John's response was that very hour he got busy. That very hour he went to the task. And, um, you know, unless, unless we think that um, John, um, you know, John being with Jesus had some favor as we already talked about, let's remember what Mark chapter 3 said, and let's turn over there. We'll wrap up as we go over there. Verse 34 and 35. And he looked around about on them which set about him and said, Behold, my mother and my brethren, for whosoever shall do the will of God, the same as my brother and my sister and my mother. If, we're, if you're saved here today, for those of us that are saved, we are spiritually related to Christ. And spiritually Today, the work of Christ continues largely through his servants. Could it be that the job that Christ gives us to do is just as important as John's? Or just as important as being his mother? As Christ says here, For whosoever shall do the will of God, the same is my brother and my sister and my mother. How is it that we view uh, the work that Christ has given us to do? Whether that's your job serving in ministry here in the church, whether that's being a witness um, on the job, whether that's how you raise your children, do we view that as, a, as a, at the same importance as the job that God gave John when he said, hey, go do this. Christ says those that do his will are who he considered his brother, his mother, and his sister. God has no hands but our hands to do the work. He has no feet but our feet. Arise and go. He has no tongue but our tongues. Open them and declare. 
And may we be faithful as John was faithful in the job that God gives us or burdens us to do um, and not put some, uh, some fantasy in our mind that as a disciple or as the mother of Jesus that these are people that carry a greater importance in God's economy. And so we find there the third saying of Christ from the cross and John's response to it. Uh, we'll finish a little early, so we have a few minutes. <clears throat>